from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. The brain has an extraordinary capacity for plasticity. I still have a hard time picking up things, but at least I can hold things and help me do so with my left hand. So. This brain-computer interface is essentially best enabling our innate plasticity to maximize our ability to remodel itself. I just got done building a boat for fishing, so I've improved quite a bit. I, I, mean, I have use of my arm and movement with my hands and fingers. I'm Sarah Fetsky. The Food and Drug Administration recently gave its approval to a new, first-of-its-kind device pioneered by a startup at Washington University. The Ipsy Hand Upper Extremity Rehabilitation System was developed by Neurolutions, Inc. And it sounds almost like science fiction. It helps people disabled by a stroke regain control of their arm and hand function by using their minds to control the device. The Ipsy Hand has been designated as a breakthrough device, and joining us today to talk about it is Dr. Eric Luthart. He is a professor of neurosurgery at Washington University School of Medicine. He is also the chief of WashU's Division of Neurotechnology, a professor of biomedical and mechanical engineering and neuroscience, and the chief scientific officer at Neurolutions, Inc. So, Dr. Luthart, that is quite a long list of titles, and welcome to the show. <laughs> Well, thanks very much for having me. So tell us about this Ipsy hand. What does it look like when it's it's on a, a patient? No, that's a great question. So the system, just to be very clear, is non-invasive. Again, even though I'm a neurosurgeon, you know, this is not an implantable device. Basically, it really has three parts. One is this headset that you put on, that, and we really designed it so that the system can be placed on a patient's head by the patient themselves, even if one side of their body is paralyzed. Mm. You can imagine almost it's this kind of, um, kind of it almost looks a little bit like a, uh, a, a kind of a mechanical beanie. <laughs> and um, then the second part is the robotic orthosis or robotic exoskeleton that's wearable. And again, the patient can don and doff this uh, by themselves. And then the third part is a, a tablet. So that gives them instructions and walks them through the process of how to use the system. And when you refer to an exoskeleton, their, their whole body isn't <clears throat> encased in this. It's almost no, just like a, a, a robo arm. It's, it's like a, a robotic wearable glove. Okay. So they put on this glove, they put on the headset, they have their tablet. How does it then work? So there's some really deep science that can, allows the system to work. I mean, on the, on the surface level, they think about moving their paralyzed hand and the system picks up the signals from that intent to move hmm. from the uninjured side of the brain and allows the robotic exoskeleton, that wearable orthosis, a robo glove, and it opens and closes their hand when they think about it. Hmm. Now, the deep science is that uh, you, over the really the past 13 years, we really wanted to understand how if you, for instance, ask a patient that it cannot move their, their left hand, uh, they can think about moving it. They can even imagine moving it, but they just can't actually do it. And as it turns out, some of the information for that intent to move is on the uninjured side of the brain. 
And we, over the years, have discovered how to kind of pick up that signal first invasively, then non-invasively, and how to convert those brain signals into a movement that allows the person to think about it and control that robotic orthosis that opens and closes their hand when they think about it. Hmm. And more importantly, it's not just that. It's that when you couple the brain signals with that movement, over time, that leads to a functional restoration that eventually they don't need this system anymore. They can actually cl- use their hand again because essentially the system has helped kind of train them to rewire their brains. Hmm. So this, this trains them to rewire their brains. Tell me what it's like the first time somebody puts this on. If I start thinking about moving my hand and I've never done this before, wearing this, this robo arm, uh, the Ipsy hand, does it start moving immediately or do I have to really work at that at the beginning? No, that's a very good question. So, uh, so when, for, when a patient gets enrolled, we do what's called a screening where we do a couple independent sessions where basically we have them imagine moving their hand. Mm. And we that's where we really kind of cone down and identify those specific brain signals associated with that intent to move. And what we often find is when they start using it and they have to use it every day for, uh, the protocol is really every day for a multitude of weeks, uh, that over time their performance does improve. So at first, you think about moving your hand and it does indeed open and close, but you're perhaps not as good as you'd like to be. Hmm. And then over time it gets better and better. But as you're learning how to use that system uh, uh, in an improved you know, fashion, that as it turns out also, your brain is learning to also control your hand in a better fashion. Boy, the brain is an amazing thing. I mean, just hearing about this, I, I feel like my mind is, is kind of exploding a little bit. <laughs> well, I think one of the things we really have to you know, th- kind of keep in, in our minds is that the brain has an extraordinary capacity for plasticity. Hmm. And in some senses, we're, this brain-computer interface is ha- essentially best enabling our innate plasticity to maximize our ability to remodel itself. And our brain is always changing itself. And after injuries, it's changing to recover. And sometimes it needs a little extra help with a brain-computer interface. Hmm. Well, that brain-computer interface, this is the Ipsy hand. It just got its FDA approval. It's so exciting. And if you're curious as we're talking about this, we have photos of this device. You can now find them on the St. Louis on the Air Twitter page. That's at STL on Air. You can also find them on our website, stlpr.org. And we're talking today to Dr. Eric Luther, who uh, helped invent this device through his role at Washington University and also as Chief Scientific Officer at Neurolutions, Inc. And now we're going to be joined by somebody who has experienced the Ipsy hand firsthand. Mark Forrest lives in Webster Groves, and he is a recovering stroke patient. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you, and it's nice to meet you, doctor, after all these years. <laughs> nice to meet you as well. So, Mark, I understand you had a stroke six years ago. What did that do to your movements of your hand and your arm? Uh, I was completely dead. I couldn't move it at all. Um, I had, a little, had some hip movement and a little bit of knee movement. But other than that, nothing else would move. So when did you hear that the Ipsy hand might be something that could help solve that problem? Uh, my wife had heard about it through WashU. And I was on the list for doing studies for him. And Lauren had called me and wondered if I'd be interested in trying it out. So I said, oh, of course, because at the time I was getting depressed because people were telling me I wasn't going to improve anymore and this was going to be it. And I didn't believe that because I'm a person that says it's half full, not half empty. Good for you. You still had hope. Oh, yes. I was determined to get better. I didn't know how I was going to do it. 
because I was pretty much done with all the therapy because they weren't helping anymore. So when Lauren called me and said, would I be interested? And I said, yes, please, because and that just right there got my enthusiasm back up to say I'm going to get I'm going to get better. Hmm. So, Dr. Luthart, would this have been um, in a trial that Mark would have gotten a chance to use this device? That's correct. So we had a number of clinical trials where we had enrolled patients to really, you know, prove that it, it could have an impact on motor function. Okay. So, Mark, you got into this trial. You got to use this very cool space-age kind of device. Did it take oh, you a long time to get the hang of using it? Um, for me, no, because uh, at the beginning, when we first put the hat on, we had to use a gel. So it was a little messy and a little uncomfortable, but I obviously didn't do anything to help. And... Uh, the machine at the beginning would start just kind of a, a program that would kind of just repeat itself uh, as a function. So once you get the hang of the repeat of the motion of it, then you try to start working with your hand to get to follow the motion of the machine. Hmm. So that's how I got started, and it just, they just improved it all along. And I think I was involved with it for about two and a half years and got a lot of things to help develop it so it would be easier for the patient to put on. That's great. And, and as far as using it, my hand today now, I'm holding things with it. Um, I just got done building a boat for fishing, so I've improved quite a bit. I'm, I, mean, I have use of my arm and movement with my hands and fingers. Um, I still have a hard time picking up things. But at least I can hold things and help me do so with my left hand. So Yeah, and you're, you're building a boat. I mean, Mark, I'm, I'm very impressed by this. Dr. Luthard, it, it must have been really cool to watch people in this trial be able to regain this function. Well, you know, for me, you know, interestingly, you know, as the trials kind of begin, the, the, the you know, the research myself, like the inventor, the engineer, you know, they keep a firewall between us so that we don't influence the outcome. So I don't get to meet a lot of the patients. And mm-hmm. so, um, but I, I, you know, every once in a while I get to hear stories and I get to hear kind of these really magical moments for me that, you know, in some senses are the most kind of impactful of kind of why we do this. And that, you know, hearing that, you know, somebody who had a paralyzed limb now can build a boat. You know, another example was, you know, one, one patient flagged me down and said, you know, Dr. Luthar, Dr. Luthar, I just want to let you know, I can put my pants on again. Mm. And, you know, these moments where, you know, you've restored somebody's independence and autonomy and just you can see kind of like just the the meaningfulness of kind of the things that they're, you're telling you. And it just, I don't know, it just it, it really, it, it, those are the moments that you work years for. So, Mark, you mentioned that you've been using this for for two and a half years, or you had been using it for two and a half years. I imagine that's, is that about the length of time, Dr. Luthart, that, that people will be using these going forward? Well, the uh, the clinical trials, you know, we, it's variable, but you know, the 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 standard trial was for three months, and then uh, you know, people, uh, a lot of people, recovered substantial function. But if people wanted to use it longer, we let a subset of them use it for longer periods of time. Okay, and so Mark, it sounds like you were in that that class where you wanted to keep using it. Oh, of course, and every time we get along, there always be something new or something they change to develop it to make it better. And I would help along saying, well, you can't, it was hard at the beginning to put the hand on and help them with the design of it so it was easier for a person with one hand to be able to put it on. Uh, the, hel- the, head- the headset was easy. Putting, putting the hand on at the beginning was a little difficult with the uh, uh, straps and everything they adjusted to it. So 
And I haven't seen a new piece yet, so I don't know exactly what it does now, but I hope they use some of my advice to make it easier for the patient to use. Because it really helps. It's, pr- it's pretty easy these that. days. So, Dr. Luthard, it sounds like there's been some um, some real advances made even during the course of this trial that Mark was in. Absolutely. So uh, that over the over the years, you know, again, we really you know wanted to make these devices absolutely patient centric. Can they put it on easily? Can they take it off easily? Can they engage with it easily? So, and again, input like this is absolutely critical. Like I didn't like this, I didn't like that, this could be better. And really listening to that so that we can uh, uh, move it forward so that, again, it's something that people want to use, they look forward to using. But I think uh, I think Mark would be very pleased with kind of the way that you can put it on and off these days. Hmm. So Mark, looking back at this experience of, of trying this Ipsy hand and, and having this in your life, how did it change your life overall? Uh, start immediately changing it because I had uh, enough positive attitude now where I could see the difference of what it was like before and after starting using the machine, it just, you could see the difference. Mm-hmm. Because before that, you would have some slap of a uh, movement that you really wouldn't notice and all of a sudden it was there. And now just using the machine just replicated so much that you could see the difference right away. Well, Mark so, Forrest, we're, we're so happy for you, and we want to thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you, doctor. <laughs> Good to connect. Thank you very much. And we're also talking today to Dr. Eric Luthart. He's a professor of neurosurgery at Washington University School of Medicine, the chief scientific officer at Neurolutions, Inc. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back shortly to learn more about the Ipsy Hand and more from Dr. Luthart. So if you have a question or comment about the Ipsy Hand, you're welcome to give us a call. We're at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpr.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. We are talking today about the Ipsy Hand. It's the most remarkable device invented right here in St. Louis. Um, it allows stroke patients to regain the function of their hands and arms, basically by, by putting on a headset and a glove, an exoskeleton glove. They can uh, they can get this device to move, and it starts to knit their brain function back together. It's, it's quite remarkable. And we're talking about it here with Dr. Eric Luthart. He is a professor of neurosurgery at Washington University School of Medicine. He's the chief of WashU's Division of Neurotechnology, a professor of biomedical and mechanical engineering and neuroscience, and he's also the chief scientific officer at Neurolutions, Inc. That's the startup uh, based within WashU that has brought out this device. So, Dr. Luthart, we did get a call from somebody, um, Nick from Wentzville called, and he's curious about people who might use the Ipsy hand. Does it depend on the type of stroke? And he also wants to know, what about people who would have traumatic brain injuries. Could it work for them too? That's a great question. So uh, really, you know, it's, it's really indicated for chronic strokes. So people who have some type of injury to one side of their brain that it, they're, for which they are left with a hemi, hemiparesis or hemiplegia in the upper extremity. So 
whether there and there's a number of different types of strokes that can cause that can cause that deficit whether it be what we call an ischemic stroke where where the, the, a part of the brain loses blood or a hemorrhagic stroke where a blood clot injures the brain but certainly i think brain trauma would uh, could potentially be amenable in the future as well okay so there could be other options um, to use this mm-hmm. this same device going forward that's right. The other thing I found myself curious about, Mark was just raving about how much this had helped him, but he did indicate that it's kind of hard to pick up things, that, that that's sort of the hardest part of this. Is there a, a clinical reason why that would be? Well, I think that uh, our patients have certainly you know, shown improvement, meaning their, their arm is better, their hand is better. But once you get to that fine dexterity, you know, that, uh, that you know, even just little things can affect that, you know, kind of that, that fine dexterity. So does, you know, I, one thing I can't say is does the, you know, Ipsia make people absolutely perfect? No, I can't say that, but it gives them meaningful amounts of function that can improve the quality of their lives. So, but, you know, some of those little imperfections, there may still be some uh, smaller imperfections that they still will notice. Hmm. So this is this is obviously such a such a breakthrough um, breakthrough device here, and beyond just what it's going to do for these stroke patients, I understand it's the first clinically approved brain computer interface. Uh, walk us through what that means. Well, you know, I, I particularly get excited about that because in, in my you know I've been passionate about neural interfaces and really tapping into the mind to kind of improve the human condition for a long time. I mean, and I think there's a, there's a large and growing field around this. And this is a passion of mine for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And no, nothing to thus far, as it relates to kind of a thought controlled device, has made it through the, the FDA process yet until, you know, kind of the Ipsy hand. Wow. And so that, and it, the, the, the technical classification of this is, you know, an, a 510K de novo uh, authorization. And what that means is that the FDA created a new category for approvals for brain-computer interfaces. So I, that that for future types of technologies similar to this, they can use this as what we call predicate. That really, you know, facilitates and makes it, you know, you know, a shorter amount of time and more cost-effective to get these type of, you know, uh, technologies to help people. So I'm deeply excited that not only I, do I think, I, you know, with the Ipsy hand are going to help a lot of people with you know, a severe problem, but it really it creates the foundation for other these type of approaches to help other people for a number of other indications. What's an example of something? You know, I mean, you said you've been dreaming of this for 20 years. What's something you dream of going forward that could build on this? Well, so I think that this idea of connecting the brain to kind of wearables to essentially remodel neural circuits. There's mm-hmm. a lot of re- neural circuits that need remodeling for a lot of you know different neurologic problems. Uh, again, dreaming. Again, not, this is not indicated currently, but again, just really emphasizing like you know what what are dreams going forward? Can sure. we expand this uh, to different parts of the body? Uh, um, can we think about this in the context of you know right now? It's really I think the majority of our population, uh, it, it, and the indication currently is for you know, people over 18, but I think that there's a lot of pediatric motor disabilities that I think that this could be impactful for. And then I think there's just a wider network of how we think about, you know, connecting, you know, our brain signals and our brain intentions with thing, 
input coming in that can lead to remodeling for a number of different cognitive disorders or cognitive uh, injury or kind of cognitive dysfunction due to various types of injuries. Hmm. We actually have another question that um, came in from another caller. Ralph from Wentzville uh, is curious if there's any connection with the technology in the Ipsy hand to the military's efforts to be able to fly planes hands-free. Apparently, military pilots can now do that. That was news to me here. But do you know if if there might be a relation between what you're having stroke victims do and, and what those pilots would be doing? Well, I think some of the uh, uh, the engineering and scientific principles are similar. Mm. That, uh, um, and again, I'm not uh, just to be very clear. I'm not exactly sure what the military is doing either. Sure, uh, um, <laughs> that's but, fair. Uh, you know that, like I, I don't have that access, but um, or that clearance. But uh, the uh, the idea of using non-invasive uh, recordings from you know uh, taken from the scalp, looking at signals associated with motor intentions and converting that to kind of a mechanical output or a control output, such as, you know, whether it be pushing a button or moving a joystick or whatever that's important for pilots, um, that, again, it, it, very similar principles, you know, it, it is my guess. So, um, but I think that, the, again, like that, and I think there's a number of companies that are doing this for a number of, you know, some medical and some non-medical applications. So, for instance, there are video game or kind of gaming companies that are trying to create these headsets either to you know, allow you to, you know, more efficiently or effectively interact with your computer or with your headset or play video games. And so, again, it's just, it, I think that this principle of tapping into the brain signals to control things, it's fundamentally a, a platform that people are going to use a, a lot. And the question is, you know, how do we optimize that usage for things that can help people like stroke or, you know, other things, you know, whether it be military or, or consumer or consumer oriented video games. Hey, you're, you might be onto something here. Uh, I couldn't help but notice this technology that you're using in this device. It, it said that it's licensed from Washington University. Are they mm-hmm. potentially sitting on a gold mine with this? You know, <laughs> I don't know about that. But, uh, um, you know, again, it def- I think that the Again, for me, it's not the economics that's driving it. You know, sure. I think it's the impact. Um, and you know, if this really can scale uh, to you know helping a lot of people, then uh, you know the Washington University does own some of that intellectual property, and they'll probably get some licensing royalties from that. Um, but again, it, you know, I, I can't say that that's <laughs> that's not the central driver for this. Sure. So with this particular device, my understanding is you had a pretty small clinical trial, um, that there were 23 people in this, and more than half of them didn't end up finishing the trial. Are you worried that for all the successes of this device, it's not for everyone, that it only makes sense for people maybe at a a certain period in their life or a certain type of injury? No, it's a very good question. And, you know, when we when we break down kind of those patients who weren't able to use it, uh, there's a number of different reasons. Some of them are medical and some of them are Mm non-medical. So, for instance, especially in a clinical trial, you have to make sure that people are absolutely uh, committed to participating for that three month trial. So sometimes people couldn't participate because they couldn't commit to that entire three month duration. Sometimes actually kind of people had medical problems that came up that uh, prohibited them from uh, uh, participating and getting enrolled. Uh, um, and then there are a smaller subset of patients who, who for instance, we, the, uh, when we're looking for their signals, they couldn't reliably generate a brain signal. Hmm. And sometimes that's ind- indicative that beyond just the motor impairment, that there's other cognitive impairments uh, uh, that 
prohibit them from fully participating in this. So you're right that, you know, could this not be forever? Every stroke patient, absolutely. Uh, because it's right now it's intended for uh, uh, motor dysfunction. But if you have motor dysfunction plus other things that that may it may not be a good fit. It was interesting hearing just how positive Mark was the the stroke patient we heard from and how motivated he seemed to be to to get something like this in his life and to make that happen. Can that also be a factor? The patient has to really want this. Sure, I think motivation is key. And I now I think it's a two-way street in some ways that certainly people have to be, you know, motivated to to want to get this, but I think also one of the things that's very powerful uh, is that when the patients use it, they see their hand move when they think about it. Mm, and, that's pretty and exciting. Think, and, and I think that this notion, and Mark was talking about this earlier, it's like people told him it wasn't going to get better. People, you know, say that, it, you know, it's not going to happen. And the, the, the classic understanding is that six months after a stroke, the likelihood for recovery is, is exceedingly small. And here we have the system, you put it on, and you think about you know moving your hand, and your hand actually gets moved by this robotic exoskeleton. And I think that's kind of a bit of a moment of kind of reinitiating you know motivation, hope that you know hey this is something that can potentially work for me. And so I think that just as the patient should be motivated to want to participate in this, I think the feedback they get can also kind of really amplify and support that motivation. Hmm. Well, this is so exciting. Now that you have this FDA clearance, it's going to be out there for people who want to use this. Do you have any sense of how expensive this device is going to be? You know, that that is, fortunately, I'm the chief scientific officer and not, you know, kind of the <laughs> You have enough to worry officer. about without worrying about pricing. But, right. And, um, but you know, I think that th there's a um, there's a there's right now there's a lot going on as it relates to uh, uh, reimbursement uh, for these type of devices. You know, there's uh, there's changing th right now. There's and it's, I don't think it's fully resolved right now, but there's regulations right now that potentially can support uh, uh, through Medicare Medicaid people getting this device and getting it paid for mm. for devices that are uh, um, both FDA approved and get a breakthrough designation. And there's only a handful of those technologies, unfortunately, we're one of them. So I think that there's real hope that, um, that you know, assuming that kind of this legislation goes through or gets fully kind of integrated, that, um, that the reimbursement process will really support patients getting this. Hmm. Well, Dr. Luthart, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and congratulations on this 20-year dream now realized. Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.